Hello everyone and welcome back to the Film Score Podcast. I'm sad to say that today's episode is the season 3 finale, although a bit excited as well. Today's guest is Grammy Award winning composer Steph Ikonomu, who actually made history about four and a half, five months ago for winning the inaugural Grammy for effectively the best video game score for her work on Assassin's Creed, Dawn of Ragnarok. And her and I talk about that, about video game scoring broadly, her Grammy win, and sort of her thoughts on maybe a bit of the future of video game scoring and representation in scoring broadly, as well as the surprise of winning, let alone even being nominated. But we primarily talk about her score for the new DreamWorks film, Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken, which features a a really interesting score from Steph, which is, as she calls it, cinematic dream pop. And it also features a number of interesting, strange instruments. It's really cool seeing a, a big studio film like this giving the composer so much leeway and wiggle room. And maybe this is a trend that we're seeing with animated films more broadly. I I mentioned this during the interview, how exciting the scores for Super Mario Bros. film and Across the Spider-Verse were as well. It's a nice contrast to what you see in some bigger studio live-action films. And one note on this interview, there's about a four or five minute span, maybe starting about ten minutes or so into the interview, where Steph's audio cut out, so I had to replace it with the Zoom audio. So you might notice a slight decay in quality for those few minutes. Hopefully it doesn't break the immersion too much for you. Now, as I mentioned, this is the last interview of season three. However, I have four other interviews that have been in the works for a while, and I don't know when they'll release, if at all. I didn't want to delay the season for those. So in between seasons three and four, you're probably going to get a few lingering interviews released here and there. So you won't be totally alone. I'll still be there. And of course, I'll hopefully be releasing the occasional solo episode as well. Although I've slacked on that a little bit over the last year or so. Now sit back and I hope you enjoy. Steph, thank you so much for joining me today. How have you been? I'm doing well, and yourself? I'm doing fine. You know, a uh, day like this, we're, we're actually recording the day that Ruby Gilman, Teenage Kraken released, with score release as well. So what is the release day like for you? It's crazy. It's a lot of social media stuff and just like building assets to show people. And uh, it's not my favorite thing in the world, but it's all good <laughs> stuff. And it's just ex- it's exciting to... Um, it's exciting to have people finally hear some of the music and just hear some people's feedback and celebrate all the musicians who played on the score. So it's it's a really it's a it's a fun day despite all of the social media stuff, but it's it's like energy around it and it's it's all it's all for the good, the good of the movie. Well, and and at least and this is just off of uh you know you had an Instagram post earlier about it, like at least based on that all of the social media reactions and interactions are super positive. I won't speak as for the rest of social media, because, you know, who knows how that goes. Uh, but at least, like, that has to be nice, too, to just see so many people being like, congrats, this sounds great, 
That is great. I might I might ask for a more like balanced feedback response. So I'd love some comments that just say like, this is garbage or <laughs> you can do much better. I'd love and then arguments ensue. That would be that would be a good time. I, I'd tune into that. That builds engagement, right? I think it does. I think it does. There's something to it. <laughs> well, so talking about the, the score in the film, then I know that you had gotten involved early on. So this wasn't the case where you know, you've got two weeks to do everything. But how early did you get brought on? And what was the, the collaborative process like with the filmmakers? I was brought on probably about a year ago, which was pretty early, but not like insanely early. They they were in a good place with things. A lot of things were sort of in the, you know, the animatic stage. And it was a nice time to be brought in because I felt like I was going to try to build the story with them and the sound of the story and get the themes in place and in a good in a good way before I like actually started really scoring to picture. So it started by me just taking a meeting and reading the script, which I really loved. Ruby just really came off the page in a really special way. And I was really inspired by it. So I came into the meeting with uh, the directors, Kirk and Farron and the producer Kelly. And I just had this idea that I wanted to try like exploring synth pop and dream pop for a lot of Ruby's stuff, like on land and mostly underwater, kind of exploring something that felt a little bit more like cinematic synth music. And they liked that idea. And to me, like a lot of that dream pop stuff really sounds like the water because of all the effects pedals and stuff, like all the reverbs and delays and modulation effects. Um, so I thought it was like, maybe, maybe it's a, maybe it's something. It could also be nothing, right? So like all ideas seem fine and then you could put it up to picture and it could just totally not work, right? But it did. It kind of worked. I sat down and I wrote a I wrote a theme suite for Ruby specifically and it was my exploration into what it could sound like in the world of dream pop. Usually my first stab at everything is just absolutely terrible and, it, you know, not great and an abject failure. However, this is the first time I wrote something and it actually stuck, which was kind of exciting and also surprising. But um, yeah, that was that was sort of the start of the score, which was probably, I don't know, maybe 10 months ago now where I wrote that. And then the fall, I really started to dive in and like write things to picture as a lot of the animation and the lighting kind of mm. came in and was being finalized. What do you do then in in the period between when you have the the suite done and then actually like being able to score the picture? Um, I mean, it was pretty seamless. They okay. they started kind of sending me like whole sequences. Maybe they were like rough, but all of the voice actors' performances were in there, so I could just kind of have like at least a chunk of something to start working with. And I started working pretty much with the beginning of the movie because the first couple reels were like nearly locked, really. So there wasn't too much of like a, oh, write the score suite and then hold until we kind of have more mm. stuff to give you. It was pretty, they were like on a, a speed and train. It was it was really fast that they had to get all of this stuff done. And it was miraculous to see just how they were like changing story points, but like all keeping at the same pace. It was It was really crazy, but it was good for me because I was just able to dive in and like get some character themes and really start to like see the score take shape and like get some soloists in and, and start to work out those things and kind of just scoring left to right for the most part. It actually on the point of the soloists and it, it goes back to, you know, talking about social media as well. I, I did notice that there were quite a lot of people involved and, you know, you you went through, like made sure to call each one out and thank them, which is always nice to see. Yeah. Oh, they're all in the credits, too. That's like a, a really important thing for me. I mean, I know 
it's not always the case where you can include everybody, but mm. I've been lucky. I, I guess I've been lucky, but I've just sort of made it a stipulation that, like, we're going to credit who deserves to be credited. I'm surprised that this is an issue. Like, they're a part of the music department. They're a part of the sound of the score, and they, like, deserve that visibility and that recognition and in the credits. So, um, and there were, as you said, there were a lot. There were a lot of a lot of amazing voices and creative people who were involved in the in making the score. So I wanted to make sure that they got their highlight because that they earned it. They deserve it. <laughs> I mean, and some of those, too, are, like, when you look at what they contributed, they're very odd things. Like, someone was, you know, (laughs) doing a conch shell. There was this bohemian crystal instrument, something that until today I had never heard of. Yep. Can you tell me a little bit about how you even brought those sounds, like how, how some of that palette came to mind and how you incorporated it? I have a pretty eclectic group of friends or just people that I have gone to school with, uh, musicians that have gone on just to do some really interesting things. I was obviously chastising social media before, which I shouldn't because that's so annoying. It's an annoying thing to say. But what's wonderful about it is that I feel like I've been able to connect with musicians all over the world where otherwise I wouldn't know about them necessarily. Like if I didn't go to school with them or if we didn't, you know, cross paths at any point. And one of those people who I found on Instagram was this electroacoustic harp player called Emily Hopkins, who is very well known, especially within the like effects pedal community, because she Mm. runs her harp through all different kinds of pedal effects and has this really successful YouTube page where she showcases them. And I just like absolutely loved her sort of creative sensibilities and all of these effects that she was she was making with her harp. And I was like, I really want to work with her. And she's also from Long Island and I'm from Long Island. And we just had like we had a lot in common. And I knew that she would be able to bring something to the score that would help the immersion because a lot of these effects, they can make it feel like you're like underwater and you're mm-hmm. um, it's very washy and hazy and all of that stuff really does speak to dream pop. It's so common to do that through guitars, right? That's like what the whole shoegaze dream pop genre is. But Emily is doing it with a harp. So I was like, that's unusual. And I really love that. And I want to explore that. So she was like really a cornerstone of this score and finding that tone that feels really unique to being underwater. And then my husband, John Monroe, is a guitarist and he played all the guitars on the score. I think he has like 12 guitars. And he just realized today (laughs) that I think he used every single one of them on this score between like electrics and 12 string. And uh, he has this rubber bridge guitar, which is a really amazing sound. It's like this muted sound that he sort of like raked and it sounded like a big like Mm. bass ukulele. And that really reminded me of the water, too. And it's just so special and like close and intimate. And then he also recorded Omnichord, which is a very strange and fun thing to have. The Bohemian Crystal instrument came about uh, because the person who built it and plays it, Lenko Morvkova, I went to UCLA with her. And she was, I think she was studying ethnomusicology or, or something when we were there. And we had a composition class together. Um, And I just kept following her, you know, since we graduated, like 10 years ago or something. Uh, And she built this crazy bohemian crystal instrument, which is made up of glass and crystal and this like these huge like shields of sheet metal. And you just like bow it with your, not bow it, but like rub the rods with water on your fingers. And it just creates this insane like earth shaking resonance. So I wanted to use that for some of the like this really like threatening sort of underwater thing called the well of seas. And that became a fun way of incorporating that. Then the conch shells were just like, yeah, I want that to be for the mermaid character. I want like a conch call and uh, this didgeridoo thing with a vocal call. 
And so Jake Baldwin, who played the conks in the didgeridoo, is a brass player that I went to conservatory with. And he's played very various instruments on all of my scores. I basically just keep sending him strange things to his door in Minneapolis <laughs> and just ask him to like, like, hi, can you put your mouth on this weird thing? And he's like, yeah, totally. Whatever, whatever you need. He's just as crazy as I am. So I don't know. There was just, I think the film like gave me license to be more creative and try to make things less traditional and and more unusual. And that was really exciting. And all I wanted to do was kind of like sprinkle in these colors to make it match and complement how colorful the visuals were. And that had a lot to do with like bringing in all of these soloists and figuring out how do we blend this? How do we make something unique with the orchestra too, you know? So it lives in kind of its own sort of hybrid world. Did it surprise you having the leeway to both like approach it and say, oh, I want to do like cinematic dream pop, which first, probably not something that like most composers on day one are like, yeah, this is how I'm going to start the score. But also, I mean, being able to put in all these different elements, because I think in my view, my experience, as you're getting into, you know, more and more like traditional studio films, higher budgets, there's less willingness, it seems, to go outside the box a little bit. And yet this seems to be the exact opposite. Yeah, I certainly felt like, I mean, to be fair, I feel like I've never worked on a project where someone was like, you got to rate it in. It's getting too nuts. Like, I always feel like I do want to try and experiment, but it's always going to be in purpose of something greater for the film. It's not going to be because it's the, it's the music show. You know what I mean? That's not what I want. I'm trying to figure out how I can push boundaries and create something different while still making it right and curating it for the story itself so that it can hold up to it. And in my opinion, I was able to kind of go into these unexpected places because the animation encouraged that Mm -hmm. and the directors encouraged that. They wanted that. I was actually quite worried about doing animation because animation is so new to me. I like grew up under Harry Gregson Williams, who was like such a king of animation music and all of his animation scores are so iconic. And I was like, I'm a big orchestral writer. I grew up playing in orchestras and writing for symphonies is a, it's what I've always done. So it's always a part of what I do. But I was like, I don't know that I can do that as well as a lot of these other composers do animation music. I was really worried about it, truth be told. So then when I had this meeting with the creatives, they're like, we don't want it to feel super traditional. Like we want it to be special. We want it to be for Ruby. It, it shouldn't sound like anything else. So I think that sort of gave me license to be like, don't worry about all of these preconceived notions that you have about animation music, which, by the way, is it a thing? Because there's a lot of risk taking in animation. But I do feel like they wanted that. And I felt really inspired to do that, probably because there was so much space for the music to be a little bit bolder in the film. As far as live action stuff, I do feel like things move in trends minimalism was a trend for a long time being like without melody was a thing for a long time that could be always fun and edgy but for the most part i think there's always going to be this counterculture of people trying to do things that are different that are outside of the norm i think a lot of like musical artists who have now come into media music are accomplishing just that and it's sort of like this catalyst for us all to to push out of the box of like what is media music it could be anything right so i definitely think that there will always be a trend you know we want something like big and thematic and sweeping, like we're really yearning for that. Or it could be something really experimental. And that's what I really love about working in this industry. But I certainly found just in this first experience working on an animated movie that I felt really inspired to push it and like keep pushing it, you know. So I'm, I'm going to take us on a really brief tangent, but it's something you mentioned jogged my memory. I interviewed Harry Gregson Williams back in like, I think, November 2021 after he did The Last Duel. 
if I if I remember right, this was like a year and a half ago. He did specifically mention you as as someone that that worked under him and like how well you did, how much you liked your career, which obviously in the year and a half since is like only increased. Um, so you know, on on the off chance that you haven't listened to every single interview I've ever done, thank you. That's very kind. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> But going back, you do raise an interesting point about, like, the preconceived notions of animation. And I think it's something that, I think saying there's a stigma is is maybe too far, but there's certainly, you know, stereotypes that people put on it. I know that I can be guilty of that, of, you know, you watch, like, an, an old Disney film or short and you see very overt Mickey Mousing. And yeah, I don't know, there, there's something about it. And yet at the same time... You have even just this year, um, you know, in addition to your score, you had Daniel Pemberton's score for Across the Spider-Verse, Brian Tyler's score for um, Super Mario Bros. movie. Yeah. Both of those are very different from what you'd call, like, animation music. Yeah, totally. It does seem like this is a space that really does offer a lot of room for the composer. I think it does, and I would say that I feel like it's the same in video games, where it really can just kind of be whatever it wants to be. And they're real, at least the people that I've worked with, they're like, there's no limitations. You know, let's see if you really go in a direction that's unexpected, what kind of dimension that brings out to the story, you know? Um, and it's a really, really exciting thing. Whether or not like live action film is a little bit more traditional, I think it really just depends on the creator at this point. It depends on the studio. But I think we've seen, like, especially with things like Spider-Verse, even like with the animation style, all of that, coupled with mm-hmm. the music, like, big risk, big reward. I mean, massively. And those things are create such, like, iconic cultural shifts in art. So I think it's really important to, like, work with creators who encourage that. And, what like, I feel very lucky that I got to work on something where that was the case. That has to be exciting, because, like, you listen to just some of your recent scores, like, other than this, your um, Assassin's Creed, Dawn of Ragnarok... Then uh, what was the other recent score that you did, like, About My Father, I think? Again, picking three out of a hat, like, three completely different sounds. Uh, So, like, being on projects that give that creativity has to be something that, obviously, like, you're not saying that's a prerequisite before I'll even take a project, but, like when it's there has to be exciting. It is. It is. And that that's a big part of what I wanted for my career. I'm not the kind of person that like has great foresight or just like knows how to like set these sort of benchmarks for myself professionally. I'm kind of just like one foot in front of the other and put your head down and do the best <laughs> you can and just try not to screw up every single day. But the one thing that I always had hoped for myself was that I get to do drastically different things all the time because I think that challenges me creatively. I'm terrified all the time. I'm totally out of my comfort zone and it's kind of thrilling while being horrifying, right? But that's what has continued to shape me. It makes me grow. Like it makes me a more well-rounded composer. And it's just all of these tools that I'm kind of building for myself as a musician. I put it in a blender and then like what comes out is just something that I, I hope is just unique to me. I don't know what my voice is, but I do know that I am really influenced by like a lot of different styles of music and getting to work on projects which which foster that is really really fun for me so i i hope i get to keep keep doing that yeah yeah i bet and talking about you know you kind of feeling terrified at times you you mentioned that really briefly about feeling like that with going into something animated broadly how did you get over that i don't know that i did i don't know that i ever will <laughs> i think it's uh i think i think it's it's just something that will always be with you i think i think alan Silvestri even once said like 
before he starts every single project, even now, he's just sort of like, did I ever know how to do this? And all the self-doubt comes and all the terror is still there, which is like terrible to think that it's never going to go away. But also like, I get it. I, I totally feel that. I think just at a certain point, now that I've been doing this for some years, I have realized just knowing that my back has been up against the wall with crazy deadlines and needing to write so much and needing it to be great that in those moments, I know that I can rely on my instincts and that I will get it done and I'll get it done to a degree that I am very happy with. So I think that trust in myself is something that I've had to build and kind of like, yes, I can rely on myself. I, I have done enough. I have built myself up in certain ways creatively that I can do that. And um, that's just like a gut thing. So uh, even though it's terrifying, it's sort of like you're going to get it done and you're sit trying to set yourself up for something. I, I just try to write music that I know I'll be proud of later. I can never enjoy it in the moment. Like today is the release day for the movie and for the soundtrack. And I'm just sort of like, great. Like I worked for almost a year on this and it was so fun. It was fun. I tried to like find moments during the process to zoom out and be like, we're making something cool. We're making a movie. But like I won't it won't be until like a few months from now where I get to listen back to the soundtrack having space and be like, yeah, I like some of the stuff that we did in there. It's a weird thing sometimes, but I do feel like this one in particular is is quite special. So how I get over the fear and stuff, I, I don't know. I just got I just got to do it. You just got to put your head down and do it. But the fear makes you better. That's what I always think. Like, I always try to have my next score be better than the last one or just, like, have it be different or have it just, yeah, be a departure for me. And then I feel like I can hang my hat up at the end of the day and be like, that was good. I'm, I'm glad I did that. <laughs> <laughs> so... On that note, then, are you someone who looks like there are actors who won't watch a film that they've been in? When the film is done, like, they're done with it. And obviously, mm -hmm. eventually, you'll re-listen. But, like, today or, you know, this week, are you watching the film? Are you, like, listening to the score release? Or are you just, like, not right now? <laughs> I, um, so I have to say, I put the soundtrack together probably three weeks ago or something like that. And then I took like a break from it. It was very intensive putting it together, the process. And I was listening to it a lot. And I wished I would have had more space from it before I kind of like shipped it off to mastering. Because mm -hmm. I think putting an album is like out is very, very important to me. Obviously, it's the music standing on its own. So having space from it, I found is important just for like understanding, is the flow right? Is there too much music? Do I want to take out this crap? Does anybody have any interest? Is anybody listening? Like there's all that that plays into it, but I didn't really have the luxury of doing that. So I was just like very hyper-focused on it. And then I took a break from it for like two weeks. And then last week I listened to the masters again, like all the way through, I went for a walk and listened to it. And I, I was like, it's nice to have that space because now I can appreciate certain things about like how mm -hmm. it plays as a whole, as a soundtrack album. And then as far as the movie goes, it's been so fun working with DreamWorks because they just have hosted a bunch of events and screenings and all of this stuff. So I get to like bring my parents and like bring some of the people who worked on the film <laughs> to come and watch it. But also that break of a couple weeks, having space from the music and the film, I got to actually sit in the theater and watch it and really appreciate it for like a film as a whole, as opposed to being mm. like hyper focused on every detail about the music and all of that. And then I was like, I'm just I feel like I'm just sitting here watching a film and that it was really and I realized how much I was enjoying it, how much fun I was having. Thing. So that that was great. I don't have an issue going in and watching stuff. I, I feel like for TV shows and things like that, you sort of work on it so intensely and it's so much that I tend to just not want to watch that stuff again. But like, you know, I'll watch an episode with like here and there. But the soundtracks, 
I don't mind listening to just to kind of, you know, especially like for the release and stuff like that. And especially because I'm talking to people like you about it and I have to remember what I wrote because I, I swear I have the memory of a goldfish sometimes. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. I wrote that track. Yeah. Well, don't don't worry. I, I won't quiz you and, and, you know, talk about a specific. Oh, you should. No, I do know a all specific of it. Track. <laughs> oh, yes. Track 17. I'd be like, oh, yeah. What did I name that one again? OK. <laughs> <laughs> So you mentioned, obviously, rhetorically being like, is anyone even listening to this? But does it surprise you that so many people listen to score releases? You know, you you look at, like, Brian Tyler's Spotify, for instance. The month that the Mario film came out, he had, like, 10 million monthly listeners. Just insane amounts of people that listen to some of these. Does that interest nowadays, like, come as a surprise? Uh, to me, yeah. I mean, I think I'm always just surprised <laughs> that any... I'm not surprised about the Brian Tyler of it all, but I am surprised... Just that anybody ever listens to my music. I don't know who you people are, but thank you very much. I'm surprised when it comes to like film and TV stuff. However, with video games, I do know that gamers love to listen to the soundtracks. And that's really exciting. And that was also kind of scary for me too, coming into games because I was like, oh, they're really really listening to the music. But what an exciting opportunity though too, because they want to have that feeling that they had when they played the game and you're spending so many hours and weeks and months sometimes living in this music. So the impression that that can have is really quite profound. And I think that's that's exciting. So I, I know that gamers love the music, which is so fun or hate it also. I mean, like it's an intense hatred or an intense love. It's there's really no in between, I don't think. But it's fun. I mean, I think media has gotten so immersive, regardless of, of the medium, that music has always had a big part in what that is like to, to build the world and to create a sound for something. You're, you're curating an experience. So it's no real shock to me. And I do think that media music has, be, has so many different things now. So it excites mm-hmm. so many different kinds of listeners and people who have all these different tastes. So it is like it is surprising because I'm sort of like, Wow. I mean, I'm I I just I maybe it's because I don't really listen to a lot of film music in my spare time, but I do know a lot of people love to hear that stuff again and it it elicits just like a certain part of their imagination, which is really really cool. Yeah, well, and and I think it's exciting too because sometimes people will frame it as a genre when really mm-hmm. it's like a medium that effectively any genre of music can fit yes. into. You know, totally. some like, yeah, like some better film than music others. is not a genre. Yeah, it's yeah. it's just so many things. It's just a particular medium. Yeah. But on the the video game side, especially when it's something like Assassin's Creed, where it's more of an open world, more time being spent in it, people can spend depending on the game, you know, dozens or hundreds of hours, and like you're obviously not doing twenty hours of music. So does that ever feel like an extra pressure of of being like this? You know, this is not a a 90 minute film experience for someone like this is something that people are going to be sitting with for like 20 hours, let's say. Yes, it's a lot of pressure. It's a lot of pressure. (laughs) It's I think about it constantly because like I played games growing up, so I just know the impact of that music. So I... Yeah, it's it's a lot of pressure. And also there's the added element of the fact that like I'm not implementing the music. So the way it's being used in the game is entrusted to the people on the game side who are working in the audio department to do that and to kind of try to present the music in slightly different ways, like using stems in some area, arranging it so that it has like more of an arc and a build depending on what the player is doing. There's a level of trust there too, that they understand their game. They know the pace. They like un- they know what players will like to hear in certain places. 
pieces. But certainly with gay music, I have found that there's no throwaway piece. There's no throwaway piece for me in anything that I do. I try not to make it that way, but every piece has a purpose and it is telling a story and it's it has a mood and it has a tone and a shape and it's all very intentional in the way that it's designed, the way that I like to do game music. And I'm sure a lot of game composers are like that too because I know that people are going to be living in it for a long time and I don't want it to feel really loopy and annoying and just like be a, mm-hmm. you know, a, annoying, like just awful for the gamer to like experience. So you want to, you want to craft these sort of soundscapes and themes and things that, that offer some sort of like immersive level for them to exist in. Depending on the game as well. Like some games, it's obviously not the purpose, but it's structured in such a way where like a, a player can really just like wander around and sightsee a little bit and yeah the score to that is effectively like the music that someone's gonna listen to while they're walking around their neighborhood or something yeah exactly those exploration cues i always try to like really make different styles and flavors of but like always look at the concept art and try to imagine myself there and like what would i want to hear if i was in that space and stuff so i always love doing those exploration cues because i know how that feels like to be exploring a map and it's just you on a horse or you would you know what i mean it's a really fun opportunity to create something cool yeah and and i think at least for people that play those the amount of time you spend on them especially if you're doing it when you're younger becomes really formative it does yeah i played a lot of morrowind when i was a kid and like Uh you know i don't know how much music's really in that game but you wander around for 100 hours when you're like 13 years old and like that's gonna stick with you forever totally yeah it's a big power like it's a big it's a big thing that composers have the responsibility for and that's that's so special and it's crazy it's crazy to like think about that when i'm sitting here like in my studio alone writing something you, you just never know the impact or the ripple effect that those things could have for a younger audience, especially where, like, there's so many vivid memories for mm. me attached to playing games when I was younger, too, and what the sounds of those scores were. So, yeah, it's it's fun. Just make sure you wield that power responsibly. I will do my best. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then, of of course, and I, I have to I have to mention it. I'm sure you've you've talked about it a, a million times already on the video game side in February. The Grammys had their inaugural award for best soundtrack for video game or interactive media, and you won the inaugural award. What was your reaction? I mean, not just winning it, but like even making the the nominations at all. Yeah, the nominate making the nominations was insane. I was I was totally <laughs> flabbergasted by that. I was like, I couldn't. I really, really couldn't believe it. Um, especially because Dawn of Ragnarok is a DLC. It's an it's an expansion, so it's not yeah. it's it's a lot less music and a smaller scale game than a lot of these other games that came out this year. So, I was really shocked, confused, thought they should probably do a recount, but was like, cool, we're we're on this train, we're riding this train, <laughs> and uh, then on the day when I I somehow managed to win that, it, I I think I really just like blacked out. I couldn't I couldn't believe it. It was really exciting obviously but i was also like thought they made a mistake again there's like a lot of imposter syndrome i'm newer to games and i was up against (laughs) like very very steep competition obviously so i was sort of like yikes i are people gonna not be psyched about this because it's the first one and i haven't done it for that long there was like a lot of that that went into it but ultimately i really do think that it was just 
an amazing year because this was the first year that this award was available for game composers. And that's a huge thing to celebrate. I'm ridiculously honored to have taken the first one home, but like it's really about the category existing now. Mm -hmm. And for all of these composers who have been doing these games for so long and making these cultural, important, like cultural things in the art world that affect so many people worldwide on a deep, deep level. It's just being recognized for that. It's so overdue, but it's it's exciting that it's finally happening. And I think it was a special year for that. And I just really look forward to many, many composers getting their due finally in that category for, for decades to come. But it's it's cool because it, it definitely adds a bit of like, I don't want, I don't, know the best way to phrase this but like cultural legitimacy i think or like artistic legitimacy to to the medium totally you can go back decades like there's tons of great video game music but i think it's really only been the last few years where more at large people are like oh yes this is actually real music yeah absolutely i think it it's finally i mean it's it's crazy though because like some of the older games i mean like everybody can sing the mario tune Like, it doesn't matter if you played it or not. Everybody can. That impact is so iconic, even more so than, like, a lot of film and TV stuff. You know, a lot of us can sing most tunes from John Williams, but hard-pressed to do for a lot of other composers. But a lot of these melodies have just become such a big part of of our culture. And having this award finally just proves that, like, we're validated in what we're creating and we are reaching so many people and we're part of evolving what media music is. Has the win had any effect on your composing career and your prospects like suddenly you know the day after you won like is the phone now ringing off the hook or is it still just one step in the the gradual progression uh no no nothing is really ultimately changed it's such a wonderful recognition (laughs) but like nothing nothing has really changed i think the most important thing that came from the award was visibility, which is really crucial. And it's especially crucial for a woman composer because notoriously, a lot of women composers do not get that same visibility, which means they're not getting the same opportunity. And it's just like kind of this this vicious cycle, essentially. Mm -hmm. And there were a lot of women that won Grammys for media music this past year at the award ceremony. And that was just a really exciting moment for us all just to see us all up on the stage there and give that visibility to be like women are doing this and we hope that there's like an influence for younger generations to see that like on the biggest stage in the world for music awards so i think that's the biggest thing that's come from it the phone was not ringing off the hook to be like we have a game now we have a game now you know how games are it's just like (laughs) they they don't it's it's many years um in process but but certainly it has opened the door to me meeting some new game developers uh, meeting some new music supervisors and audio directors in in the game world which is really great and just some people just calling to say like congrats and that was really nice i had seen somewhere that you had you had mentioned that you know one since it felt like uh, ubisoft had taken a chance on bringing you on board in the first place and so obviously like the success of the game the score kind of it's it's rewarding them as well for doing that and so like do you think there's going to be more of a more of those studios are going to go yeah you know we we can we should take these chances dude i really hope so i i really do you never know i think people just sort of have their own reasons for doing things but i feel like ubisoft always did that and they do take chances on people i had never done a game before and they didn't they wanted to to try that like they wanted to open the door to diverse composers, younger composers they maybe had never heard of on a DLC level because it's less of a commitment, right? So it's not like, you know, Mm. you're going in on a AAA title for three years. 
But they did that intentionally because they want to just sort of diversify the composers that they work with. And if you look at all of the Assassin's Creed scores, they're all so different and they're freaking awesome. Like they're so unique, so many of them. And that's because they take risks on people. Big risk, big reward, like we were talking about before. It really is that way in music and in most other things in creative fields. So I don't know. I don't know if other companies will follow suit. I do know that a lot of game companies like in just in the past year or in the future are likely going to kind of pivot to instead of just using in-house composers, also like hiring out to another mm. like composer to have on as lead composer to contribute as well, which can always broaden the sort of stylistic and, and creative direction that the score takes. But I, I do hope that like, I mean, my heart will always be with Ubisoft because they did do that for me and they do that for so many people. And there's like, that's that's a big deal. That's a big deal that they just offered this opportunity. And I, I really do hope that more studios do that, too, because that's how we get new stuff. That's how we shift the paradigm. That's how we get exciting different music out there, which is making us all better in the end. The more diverse different voices that we have in here, whether it's like an artist coming from a band direction or like a concert composer, you know, it's all moving towards the greater good and evolving the sort of landscape of what this music is. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, and it's something that you'd mentioned earlier of, of someone that comes in from a band background, for instance, maybe bringing an entirely different perspective or palette. And exactly. That's, that's how it is. Once you start going out from like everyone that has a more traditional classical background. So totally. as, as someone who who enjoys, you know, listening to this stuff, but also I don't play many games anymore, but like watching mm-hmm. movies and shows, that always excites me. Yeah, likewise. So, I mean, at this point, you've worked in some games, you've done a number of films, shows. Do you think that there are, the particular medium has more or less of an openness of taking a, quote, chance? I would say, I mean, DreamWorks took a chance on me, too. I had never really done an animation. I did, like, a short animated film. But, you know, something great, which really offered me the opportunity to do Ruby Gilman, was that NBC Universal started this initiative called the Universal Composers Initiative, and it's a diversity initiative specifically, where they saw that there was such a horrible imbalance for composers that they were Mm -hmm. mostly men and mostly white men who were getting a lot of these jobs notoriously for years, which is an artifact of a lot of things, you know, systemic misogyny and, and a lot of things, lack of visibility, as I mentioned before. So Universal created this initiative, which I was part of the first year, where they picked six composers and they kind of just took us under their wing and gave us access to the music executives at Universal, put us up for gigs. I mean, that's like the biggest way to enact any kind of change is like give us a chance, like get us in the door, put us in front of a director and like see if something clicks. And that's what they did. And this was like two years after I was even in the, in the initiative where Natalie Hayden at Universal called me up and was like, do you want to submit a reel for this new DreamWorks film? And that's when I started sweating. And I was like, I can't do animation. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> and my agent was like, shut up, put a reel together. Um, so I did. But and then she got me the meeting with them. And it was just a really like great creative connection between myself and the directors and the producer. So that's how that took off. And it was all because they started this thing and they made a concerted effort to be like, we want diverse voices. We want the younger generation. We want this to change. So they took a risk and they did that. And that's not to say that every animation studio would do that, but Universal did that for me. And Ubisoft did that for me in games. I don't think that has happened to me in TV and film yet, like live action stuff. But 
it's all just dependent on the studios. So like it's yeah. if they I know that, you know, like I love Netflix and they didn't seek to hire me because I am a woman composer. They just I met with them and they're like, yeah, you're a good fit for this project and we'll think of you in the future. You know what I mean? So there's a lot of that. But I'm, I'm lucky in that I do wonder if there is an element of in games, there's more risk taking in, in how they make them. And they're just different and they're cutting edge, a lot of them. And in animation, I think it can kind of be that same way as mm. well. Who knows? In some, maybe some live action film or TV stuff, there is a sense of traditional values there which doesn't i don't know that that actually really exists too much anymore it really is down to the decision makers and they have all that power they have the hiring power and if they have the self-awareness to know listen we're going to take a chance on someone younger because they're going to bring something fresh and unique to it that's great and some people don't they just either either have a continued collaborator they've worked with for a long time which is great too or it's just not a priority for them on a composer level to kind of do that but i do wonder like you said the more of these like awards, which are the big stage things that get all that visibility. If you see people who you don't see the same people up there all the time, if some people will take note and be like, there's something to that, you know, making a, a choice that's not as common can pay off. I mean, let's let's hope so. It's also exciting that there are other initiatives going on from even the studio perspective, trying to make these changes. You know, it was, it was a real bummer to me when I heard about a year ago, um, early mid last year, that like Sundance had shut down its yeah. um, its composer lab program. But I'm glad there are other things exist. And yeah, I've I've heard so many times from women and from other like historically underrepresented groups in the media composing world that what they want is just like just give us a chance like just you know just a chance let us go into a meeting like just let me pitch yeah let me fail like if i fail but give me give me that shot which notoriously is like sometimes you really just need someone to just open that door the tiniest crack for you and then you you just you bang it open you know but it's it is great that some studios are doing that i know there are a lot of other diversity initiatives which can feel like kind of performative just like in other areas of Mm. the industry but I have found that like Sundance Labs was great and we're doing actionable things as as does Universal. So there are great things that are happening out there, which is which is good to see that it's kind of a collective responsibility that even the studios are starting to feel like we can make a difference. And Universal, all of us that came from that first year of the Universal Composers Initiative have worked on projects with Universal or DreamWorks, either film, TV, anything like that. So it's proven that it's going to make a big change. Yeah, well, and, and hopefully they're putting it together of going, oh, when we give these other people a shot, like, oh, I guess what it turns out well. Like what happens. Yeah, exactly. On that hopeful note, Steph, it was, it was great chatting with you. Congratulations again on the release. Belated congratulations on the Grammy as well. Thank you. And yeah, I, I hope more people check the score out because it is it is a very cool genre mash. You don't hear some of those stylistic choices, those influences in film very often. So it's it's always nice to hear something a little different as well. Thank you. I appreciate that. As of recording, 4th of July is right around the corner. So have a good 4th as well. Hopefully, hopefully you're really getting a chance to like kick your feet up for a little while and relax. Yeah, I think that's going to happen. I hope the same for you too. Thanks. Thanks so much for this. Thanks, <laughs> Thanks. for your, your questions. We're all very thoughtful. So thank you. Thanks for that.